Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is also available at airlinesconfidential.com. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net. No one on the airline he used to run ever complained about a reclining seat. That's because he didn't even let us recline. He's Ben Baldanza, the former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. And while he doesn't want everyone to know this, he was once the model for Otto, the autopilot in the airplane movie. He's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst. Ben, surely nobody remembers that reference anymore. Oh, everyone will remember it, Seth, and stop calling me Shirley. (laughs) Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about lots of bad things impacting airline demand and one very good thing impacting airline costs. We're excited to introduce a new segment, Passengers Behaving Badly. But which passenger is to blame? Or is it an airline to blame? That's in our finer wine segment. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. A couple that has been diagnosed with coronavirus traveled earlier this month around Hawaii and then from Hawaii back to Japan on flights operated by Hawaiian Airlines and Delta, respectively. That according to statements by the two airlines, which both, of course, said they're cooperating with relevant health authorities to protect everyone else. No sign yet of any big impact on travel demand from coronavirus fears other than to and from China and, of course, within China itself, where countless flights have been canceled and lots of those that aren't canceled are flying empty. But, Ben, whenever you uh, see news like this, you wonder if fears will begin impacting travel demand elsewhere. Uh, Meanwhile, the coronavirus lockdown itself in China clearly having an impact on global supply chains and the broader global economy. That, in turn, will have to impact airline demand in some way. Uh, Not good news for airlines. On the other hand, airlines are now paying far less for jet fuel, about a buck fifty a gallon, uh, down from about two bucks a gallon in the U.S. at the start of the year. Now, small jet fuel prices are a big deal for airlines because for many airlines, fuel is their single biggest expense. So, Ben, How does this all net out for airlines and travelers? Sounds like reasons for airlines to worry about demand and for travelers, passengers to think they might see maybe some lower airfares. But if the weak economy also means lower demand for oil and thus cheaper fuel, maybe that's all okay for airlines. Well, it's certainly a trade-off right now, but if it were me, I'd say that the coronavirus issues are more of a concern, only because fuel prices have been volatile for a while, even though they've been generally behaving as far as airline go, airlines go. If you're an investor in airlines, most investors sort of won't give airlines credit for lower fuel prices, which means if the airline makes more money in a quarter and all of that incremental money that they made was because the fuel prices were lower they'll say well yeah but we're not going to really like tell people they should more people they should buy your stock because it's all fuel related and we know that can turn around on you the coronavirus i think is a bigger issue while i don't 
see it, like you said, affecting air travel demand other than to from China or certainly within China right now on airplanes. It absolutely is affecting cruise business. And since some airlines more than others sell a lot of packages where they carry people to cruise ports, that traffic certainly is being affected right now. It's not a big enough issue to sort of look like global um, demand shrinkage for airlines, but we don't know how this is going to happen yet. So if it were me, I'd worry more about coronavirus than feel good about fuel prices. Yeah, those those just highly visible images of, of people stranded aboard cruise ships. Uh, yeah, I, I think even people who probably don't have a lot to truly worry about, you see that and you, and you could just imagine what that does psychologically in terms of cruise bookings. Or having to uh, have your ship dock in Cambodia because nobody else would let you go yeah, there. Yeah, nobody will take you, yeah. The airline world, Ben, has a new alliance member. And this one was kind of a surprise. Alaska Airlines is joining One World. Now, look, Alaska was already aligned bilaterally with plenty of One World Airlines around the world, which would fly to places like Seattle and San Francisco and connect with Alaska's short-haul flights. Uh, It was aligned with American. That alliance became looser in recent years and will now become tighter again. Now, Ben, this kind of shakes up what had seemed like an emerging truth to me over the past decade, which was I thought that alliance membership hasn't seemed to work out well for short haul airlines. When we look around the world at short haul airlines that are well positioned to feed global airline networks. JetBlue, WestJet, EasyJet, Gold, and in Brazil, and, and until now, Alaska, as well as others, they generally seemed to feel like they could have the milk without buying the cow. Uh, <laughs> you'll get all the benefits of, of being in an alliance, but without having to, to bear the expenses, because it is expensive uh, to upgrade your, uh, your technology, to, to pay for lounge access around the world, all the rest of it. Now, what, Ben, do you think changed? Alaska's own situation, or do you think they just got a better deal from One World than they would have gotten in the past? Who needed who more here, the Alliance or the airline? Well, it might be a little of both, Seth. You know, for many years, Alaska within the industry, people used to talk about them as Switzerland, sort of they were friends with everyone, right? And um, I've heard... um, I've heard uh, words that I don't want to say on a podcast referred to that strategy also, sort of a code, <laughs> a code blank. All right. <laughs> but um, but the, the point is they, they had multiple code share relationships with different airlines. And I think by going with One World, in some ways, they're actually going away from a strategy that was code with everyone who will code with me. And now sort of I'm going to limit myself to the admittedly large but still limited One World members. And so I don't think they had to do much in terms of technology or things like that. They'll certainly have to pay One World a fee, which all Alliance members pay. They may have to do some other things to connect with carriers they hadn't been connected before. They'll probably have to paint a couple of their airplanes like the One World Alliance with the all alliances make their airlines do that kind of stuff. But from a technology standpoint, I don't think they were that far behind the eight ball. Some of the other carriers you mentioned are also in multiple code share relationships. So the code share aspect of joining the alliance probably wasn't that big a deal for them. I think, and now this is going to be a really weird connection. I think this is actually somewhat related to what we talked about several podcasts ago, which was Delta stealing Latam from One World. Mm-hmm. And like if um, look, if One Alliance can steal an important airline in a part of the world from one where 
you know, Sky Team and Delta sort of stole Latam from One World, One World might be saying, look, I think it's more important that we shore up relationships that aren't as strong as they could be. And while American had the code share with Alaska, maybe they felt that uh, they needed to make it stronger. So I would think that this was a case of where the alliance needed Alaska a little more than Alaska needed the alliance. And Alaska probably ended up getting a pretty good deal from this. You know, Seth, one of the things I teach in my class (laughs) is when it comes to alliances, it's hard to say whether it's good or bad without knowing the details of what Absolutely. is called the pricing prorate deal, yeah. which is a fancy word for saying how do we split the revenue in a ticket that flies both airlines? And what are the economics of the frequent flyer exchange that they may have? Now, American and, and Alaska exactly, may have that before. Yeah, so. yeah. And that's exactly what I was referring to before when I said these short haul airlines and generally the way Alaska seemed to to uh, to view this. And this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but I know we have we have uh, some listeners who, who are fascinated by this stuff. For everybody else, just bear with us here. We'll get to passengers behaving badly and all the rest of it. <laughs> but, but, but no, it's those details are really important. And, and generally, uh, uh, some people might know Alaska had that big rift with Delta. Used to be very close with them. Then they became uh, you know, essentially enemies. Um, and a lot of that just had to do with Alaska sort of feeling. Listen, we we can we can just basically get more for our tickets than you would pay us within the alliance structure as you kind of view it, right? And that's those prorates. And basically what it comes down to is, you know, if if you prorate a ticket, if you say, here's a ticket from, you know, I don't know, London to Portland connecting in Seattle. And if you just sort of prorate it and say, okay, well, what's the Seattle Portland portion of that worth? And you say, well, 50 bucks, right? (laughs) Because, you know, based on mileage, then that might not be a very good deal for Alaska if it could go out and sell that ticket for hundreds of dollars. So that's what makes, and and that's one reason why these airlines uh, very often, these shorter haul airlines have felt they haven't gotten the better deal of it. So that's what makes me think that maybe, yeah, maybe they just got a better deal than they would have gotten in the past. And that's why finally they did this, whereas they didn't join uh, Sky Team back when they probably had that opportunity. Uh, now, we, we talked, Ben, about how airline, uh, Alaska is already aligned with a lot of One World Airlines. Uh, it, it does, however, have those code share partners in other alliances. So now that it has chosen sides and joined One World, how likely is it that Singapore Airlines of the Star Alliance will remain an Alaska partner, or especially Sky Team's Korean Air, which has a close joint venture with, yeah, Alaska's enemy Delta. What's going to happen to those relationships? Well, that's a tough thing. You know, I'm sure Alaska would like to keep everyone in the fold and say as, you know, they made the deals initially because presumably they worked for them. And if they didn't work, maybe this, this is a, a reason for them to get out of them. But I would be surprised if they don't lose some of the partnerships that aren't related to One World. There are examples in the world of airlines code sharing with airlines that are not in their alliance. They may be yeah. in an alliance, but they code share with others. So it's not like this would set a new precedent. But it's not as common as you might think it might be. And so I think, especially in the case of Korean, like you said, that's, uh, you know, Delta and and Alaska have been having a real war up in Seattle. So Alaska is not going to want to help someone who's partnering with Delta, I don't think, by giving them feed, by giving them attractive pro rates or letting people 
share frequent flyer miles or things. So I would guess that some of these partners that are not part of One World over time will no longer be Alaska partners. Today they are. Delta probably wants to keep them, but it just doesn't seem the way the politics of alliances really works. Or, or Alaska wants to keep them. You mean? Yeah, that's what I meant. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I meant Alaska. Yes, I. No, and and now Ben, it's time for passengers behaving badly. Who was to blame in this one? The recliner, the reclinee, or both? Uh, surely you've heard the story by now. Since there's nothing more important going on in the world, a woman <laughs> named Wendy Williams traveling from New Orleans to Charlotte on American Eagle Flight 4392, actually operated by Republic Airlines, reclined her seat. The man sitting behind her in the last row of the plane found that uncomfortable. So he tapped her gently on the shoulder and said, quote, excuse me, ma'am, I know you didn't mean anything by that, but is it really it is really tight back here? Is there any way you could maybe put your seat up at least a bit? And she said, quote, of course, I'm not the kind of person looking for trouble or looking to draw any extra attention to myself. There, how's that? Is that better now? Just kidding. That's what should have happened. What did happen is the man, whose name we don't know, began punching the seat. Williams recorded him doing that on video. She claims flight attendants sympathized with his predicament and gave him free rum. I would have taken scotch if I were him. That's just me, though. We don't know his side of the story. Don't know what exactly happened before she started videotaping. We do know, along with tweeting at American Airlines, she tweeted at Bravo TV host Andy Cohen. He's great at what he does, but you can do whatever you want with that information in terms of evaluating her credibility. Also, she tweeted the next day that she was experiencing severe headaches since the incident. Uh, she'd seen a doctor and had x-rays. Ben, the seat recline button. We just can't have nice things, can we? Well, this is such an amazing story in terms of the legs it's gotten. And I have to say, Seth, that as the story has gone on and the more that we learn about this, I'm feeling more skeptical about her than him. Now, I will say the the fake conversation that you put at the beginning of this was, excuse me, ma'am, you know, it's my seat doesn't recline. I'm in the last seat. Can you pull up a little? If that had happened, I think this never would have happened because it was yeah. be hard to imagine that any rational person wouldn't just say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll pull my seat up a little. Right. Because the kind of conversation now, like that, like the fake one happened every day because I've been a part of those conversations. You know, yeah, I know. So so I would actually put most of the blame of this situation on on him because he should have been much more civil and much have just spoken to another person rather than start knocking on her chair. Right. If anything that annoyed her at first and then once he kept doing it, she probably just dug in more and said, no way am I pulling this, you know what, seat up. Right. right? Yeah. And so um, on the other hand. Now that I hear that she wrote to all these people and she recorded it and she's now going to sue the airline and say that she had these medical issues and things like that, it suggests to me that she saw an opportunity in this as well. And I think that's wrong, too. So I the guy never should have hit her seat. Um, she had the right to recline for sure. She's got a recline button. He had the right to ask her not to, which he didn't do. He just knocked on her seat. But I think she's kind of taking advantage of the situation too. I don't know. Do you see it that way or am I just being cynical? Yeah, yeah. That that's and, and we, by the way, don't even know for sure that he didn't ask her again. All we know is, you know, her side and, and what started after she started, you know, what happened after she started recording. I heard people say a lot of different things people say well you shouldn't recline into somebody who's in the last row well that that logic doesn't hold up because okay so 
So then what about, okay, so if the person in the second to the last row doesn't recline <laughs> out of courtesy versus the last, what, what about the person in the third to the last row? What, what are they supposed to do? Because now we could, we've just made the rule that the person in the second to the last row can't essentially can't recline. So like at some point, there's going to be somebody reclining into somebody who, who either physically can't or, or we're saying is not allowed to recline. I mean, the reality is that there's not a lot of leg room, uh, especially when you're flying standard economy on Republic from New Orleans to, to Charlotte these days. That's just that's just how it is. And, and yeah, usually you can work these things out. What's Ben, do you have like a rule for yourself? Like, do you always recline, never recline when you're sitting in, a, in an economy seat? I almost never recline. Okay. I, I feel very um, I feel very conscientious about reclining. If for some reason the seat feels really, really, you know, straight boardish up, but I know someone's behind me, I'll recline like a quarter of an inch or yeah. something like that and just never the whole way back or something like that just so I can feel, well, that's a little better. But even most of the times, I don't even do that. And I'm not sort of patting myself on the back for being this great flyer or anything like that. It just comes to the fact that, you know, their seats are so tight. It really seems to me that no seat should recline. And I know that when we took the recline out of the seats at Spirit, we got generally skewered for that. On the other hand, we tried to explain to people, but isn't it great that no one reclines into your space either? I really think this comes down, Seth, to what is your space on an airplane? It's Is it the space in front of you? Is the recline your space? Is the overhead bin above you your space? If somebody else has a bag there, can you ask them to move it? I think there's a whole issue here around what is your space in an airplane beyond just the seat you're sitting in. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And by the way, I have gotten to where I do what you're describing over the years. I used to recline more, but there also used to just be more more legroom, more seat pitch. And as the seat, as it's gotten tighter over the years, I've just thought more and more about that person behind me who, you know, and it's not me being hypocritical. It's just, you know, they, they just have less room now. So it's not that I, I used to not care. Now I care. I care just as much as I always did. But it used to be, you know, in the old days, I thought it was kind of okay. And and, and more and more, um, I think about them. But that said, as long as as for as long as seats do recline, I believe people have the right to recline, but you just have to do it the right way, as as you described. People, by the way, I think have short memories. This is all being reported like this is the first time this ever happened. There was that incident back, I think, 2014 on United Airlines. I want to say Newark to Chicago. Uh, the the knee defender, do you remember that? This guy actually yes. attached a contraption to prevent the person in front of him from reclining, and that became a whole thing. And whenever this happens, for like weeks after, you watch TV, you read online, and, and you'll feel like, the only thing happening in the world is people fighting over reclining seats, <laughs> even though it's probably just us paying more attention to things that that uh, that, that that occasionally happen anyway. Well, one final question: I, I, I joked about it in, in the in the intro to the show, Ben, and you mentioned it again just now. But the pre-reclined seats on Spirit was that? I mean, just being cynical, I'm going to guess that the main motivation there wasn't to prevent fights about reclining seats, right? I mean, there there there, there had to be another economic rationale. <laughs> so what? Yeah, t- talk to me about that. How, how did how did that analysis go? Well, that analysis was mostly about costs because seats break, and when seats break, they have to be fixed. And sometimes the fixing of those seats keeps the plane out of service for some time. And our maintenance people at uh, Spirit realized that the things that broke the most in the seat were things related to the recline mechanism. Yeah. So if we could have a seat that was just fixed in its pitch 
whether that was straight up or reclined or whatever, but it just didn't move from that point, then it would have many fewer parts and it would break a lot less often and it would be lighter weight. And those were all the reasons that initially led Spirit to that. Once we were in that position, we realized that there was the advantage that no one could recline into you, even though you couldn't recline either. So that's a 50-50 kind of case, I think. Yeah. And there was that euphemism pre-reclined. And I, I think everybody sort of said, oh, come on. But it, were they actually, I mean, because I think they kind of are angled back a little bit. Was, it, was that real that they like that the position that they're that they were and that they still are fixed in? Is that reclined relative to an upright seat on a reclining airline? The initial seats at Spirit that, that were fixed were fixed at the maximum that the previous seats had reclined. Okay. That that doesn't mean the maximum that any seat on any airline reclined. Right, no, and no. I'm not going to suggest that those seats are as reclined as maybe this, maybe Miss Williams' seat was <laughs> on this flight. <laughs> Although, how much does a seat really recline on, on, on Republic, on one of these... these uh, out of probably an Embraer 175, I guess it must have been, right? I mean, you know. Anyway, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, more Italians who speak perfect fluent Yiddish. Well, post it at anyway. And then a complaint during fine or wine. It's more Airlines Confidential next. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, let's go to the mailbag. Tim in Portland writes, loving the podcast. And like Ben, my Italian Catholic family also <laughs> used the word fetch. <laughs> I had no idea the can of worms that uh, that I was going to open by throwing that word into the script. But yeah, we talked about it. it it's, a, it's a crossover word. I think some of us Jews like to think that like we're the only ones that can, can pronounce these words, right? Like it, they're just unpronounceable by anybody else. But it turns out that uh, there are probably other people who speak, uh, people who aren't Jewish who speak better Yiddish or at least uh, use these words more than uh and I'll give you an example, by the way. It's funny. I've been paying attention to this now over the past week or two because I got I got an email from a friend of mine who was telling me a story. Uh, she's not Jewish, and she uh, was, was telling this story, and she said that the, the Yentas had asked her about the story. She was referring to other friends of her. None of whom are Jewish. It's like four women. Uh, they're, but but they're, there you go. We're Yenta, right? And, and you don't think about it. But, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a Yiddish word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> David in Seattle, right? Hey, guys, I think you might have missed the point of the caller's question about regulation. Ben, this was the one somebody said, you know, should airlines have to disclose all the information that they do? Uh, You both only touched, David continues, on an airline's operational performance being a reason why they might or might not want to share stats. A larger, more touchy subject is the airline's requirement to report traffic and revenue data. This is a double-edged sword in which airlines can identify new route opportunities, but also allow others to reverse engineer their profitability, leading to increased competition on certain routes. 
Uh, it's a worthy topic you sh should spend more time on in the future, David, uh, clearly uh, an astute listener. I have to say the, the, that other question, if I remember correctly, um, didn't specify. So so I don't know what she was referring to, but David, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the operational side and then there's a the whole commercial side. And that's true. I think I used the example about should the restaurant have to report how, how often it doesn't meet its 15 minute lunch guarantee. But uh, this David is correctly saying, you know, if restaurants had to do what airlines have to do, it would also have to report, you know, its, its average revenue per customer and, and, and all the rest of it. And that is something that airlines have to do that companies in most other industries don't. I think David is right. David obviously knows more than the average uh, listener about the way airlines have to report these things and how they use this information. But he's absolutely right. The fact that airlines have to report their traffic and revenue data, and that gets essentially regurgitated by the government in their traffic statistics, airlines can use that to say, oh, that's a really good route. Look how many people fly there. And I wouldn't know that if airlines didn't report those data. And so I think, again, while the issue he makes is absolutely right and clear here, I think the fundamental problem is what we said before, which is all of that reporting is a vestige of when the industry was regulated. And those aspects of reporting around operational and revenue data are a vestige of the pre-1978 regulated world of airlines. And in my mind, the, the current sort of government doesn't have any reason to collect any of that stuff. But airlines are required to give it to them. And I think most airlines would willingly opt out if they had the chance. Right. Where we are today, this is not a result of saying, what should there be? This is a result of starting with actually a lot more regulation and saying, what should there not be? And of course, if you start with everything and, you, and then you start taking things out, you're probably going to end up with a different answer from if you just started with a clean sheet and, and said what's really necessary. But no question, a double-edged sword indeed. And uh, airlines... Look, this is the world they live in, and, and, and the good ones use that information to their advantage, whether it's the commercial information, as David said, to, to, to plan routes because they know how, how things are working for their competitors, or a, an airline like Delta, which likes to brag about its operational superiority compared to other airlines. Other airlines talk about how, how they've improved. Um, speaking of Delta, so we had Tim in Portland. We had David in Seattle with the Pacific Northwest well-represented. Let's go to Mike in Brooklyn, New York. Mike. I have a question about United Airlines. It seems like Delta is always doing fantastic things for their customers, whether it's flying a team with a spare aircraft or helping veterans get to where they need to go. But it also seems like United can't catch a break. They are breaking guitars. They're dragging people off of airlines. Why is United always seeming to never be able to catch a break and never put one foot properly in front of the other? Certainly, Ben, a lot of that was true. I think United's actually been closing the gap here in recent years, at least in terms of the reality. It takes time for perception to catch up with reality. Is that part of what's happening here? That Delta legitimately did a good job turning itself around, running a good airline, and now people, including media, maybe just kind of expect good things from Delta? Or is it just that they are really doing a better job? And, and that's why we hear about <laughs> Delta rescuing. Uh, I, I think the, the illusion Mike was making there was to uh, there was that that flight full of kids. Uh, I think they were supposed to fly American from what Oklahoma City or Tulsa or somewhere to Richmond. Flight canceled. Delta flew a plane in. There was that team I think was 
canceled off a frontier from Philly or Trenton or somewhere down to Florida, Orlando, maybe, and Delta rescued them, right? I have to say, we covered this in, in one of my NPR segments a few months ago, and I actually asked Delta, like, do you have somebody sitting around looking for these opportunities to, to swoop <laughs> in and get this coverage? And, and they said, they said, no, no, no. And they, and they said, and this, this is true. They said, look, it came about in different ways. I mean, in one case, it was an airport agent overhearing the thing. And in, in another case, it was, uh, you know, it was somebody tweeting. So they said it couldn't even be that they said oh we just like to do the right thing of course they're going to say that uh but, but what what do you think ben what's what's uh is it more perception more reality uh united are, do are are people i mean they're running overall a better operation now statistically we can see that do you think people are recognizing that <laughs> how to help us sort this all out well, um, reputations do take a long time to change. That's absolutely true. You know, the fact is Southwest has been a good airline for so long. When something goes wrong, people see it as a real anomaly, not what they would normally expect from Southwest. Whereas you take another airline, fill in the blank of the airline you hate the most. And when something goes wrong there, it just reaffirms what you've always thought that that airline yeah. stinks, right? Information so, bias. Yes, that's, that's right. Confirmation bias. That's exactly what it is. And I think that United has had more big mess ups than Delta, in part because they've, you know, shot themselves in the foot a few times, like the Dr. Dow incident. And the and then they've had very creative customers who sing the song United Breaks Guitars. That was so good. And things like that. Yeah, that's right. I know. And um and Delta is just so good, right? Delta's good at a lot of the things they do. They they run a great airline. They make a lot of money. They, they also have had a longer term, better relationship with their labor groups than United. United's getting better at this, but United has a very long history of antagonistic relations between the management and labor. And that translates itself into a gate agent who doesn't feel empowered to sort of get people off the plane and you end up with the Dr. Dow incident or baggage handlers who maybe don't care quite as much, right? And the guitar gets broken and bad things happen at every airline and bad things happen at Delta and bad things happen at United and at every airline. Delta though seems to have an employee group who cares a little bit more and who goes the little extra mile more often. United admittedly is catching up with this. It's clear, we want to give them credit where credit's due. But because Delta has been good at it for longer and because they they may not have people looking for opportunities to swoop in, but when that happens, they make a big deal out of it and they should because they've done a good thing and they should get the credit for that. But I think just the... The fact is there's more good stuff about Delta and there's more negative things about United. And so when you hear these things, that confirmation bias kicks in. United's getting better. Delta's already good and Delta's the standard. Make no bones about it. Delta's the standard by which both American and United are measuring themselves right now. And that's why United is considered getting better because they're closing that gap. And that's why there's trouble in American land right now because they're not performing nearly as well. And it's all because of how good Delta's doing. Yeah. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us like Mike did at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for Fine or Wine. We listen 
to an actual customer complaint, then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, this is Finer Wine, the international edition, Seth. <laughs> this one comes from Kabali of London, complaining about Lufthansa. Kabali writes, I flew from London to Algeria with my family. When we got to Algeria, half of our luggage didn't turn up. All of my medicines were inside the suitcase. I'm a DVT and diabetic person. We didn't get our luggage after 24 hours. Hmm. Hacked the medicine inside the check bags. Bag didn't show up for 24 hours. That's 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 no fun for sure. Who, who, who do you side with here, Ben? Well, you got to say that it's a fine, I think, because Lufthansa should have delivered the bag. And it's a there's no way to say that if the bag isn't delivered, it's the customer's fault. Right. Uh, and so so Lufthansa is to blame here for not delivering the bag. They should have delivered the bag. They should have gotten it to them maybe more quickly, although my guess is they don't have high frequency flights to Algeria. Yeah. And so maybe they got it, you know, the next day because that was the next day they had a flight. Yeah, coming in. Now, now that said, no customer should ever put sensitive medication in a check bag. You just put that in your carry-on bag. It makes me crazy when people talk about something so critical for the first 24 hours on the ground where they were was put in check bags. Check bags get lost or mishandled once in a while. So yeah. medicines, expensive cameras, things like that should never go in check bags. Right. And so I'm not blaming the customer for this. This is uh, this was Lufthansa's fault. It's it's not a whine at all by the customer. But this customer, Kabali, should do what every customer should do. Don't put sensitive medications in a check bag. Right. Anything you can't live without for, for a day or two. And for anybody who doesn't know this, uh, I think some people worry about carrying liquids through security. If, if you have a prescription, it, it's don't worry about that. It can be over three ounces or over 100 milliliters if you're outside the U.S., whatever the, uh, the the requirement is. And anything that you can't possibly be without for a little while, exactly. Carry it. Carry it with you. Well, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. And if you see a passenger behaving badly, hopefully if it's not you, I hope you tell us about that too. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.